Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. All right, I think we're rolling. I'm back in Plenary Session Video Edition with Roxana Denishu. Professor, no, not yet professor. Uh, Roxana Denishu is a uh, senior scholar at uh, Stanford University. She's a medical scientist. She's a dermatologist um, and studies, um, I think, the intersection of machine learning, artificial intelligence, dermatology, issues at the regulatory intersection of dermatology and, and medical practice. Roxanne, it's so nice to speak with you today. Nice to be here. So what did I bungle about your title? I got it wrong. I, it's fine. I think, you know, <laughs> they, these things are just terms. Um, uh-huh. I, I think of myself as a scientist, as you said. So I think that's probably the most accurate thing. That's right. Well, that's a good that's a good thing to think of oneself as. Um, now, tell me a little bit about your background. You did your MSTP. Where did you do your MSTP? And then, uh, yeah, what's your path like? Yeah. So actually, my I'm going to go back to undergrad because okay. I studied bioengineering in undergrad. Um, and it was just very interesting because it was, again, like the intersection of technology and medicine mm-hmm. um, and thinking about how to design new devices and tools. Um, and then I went to Stanford for medical school um, and I did a PhD in genetics, but it was in a bioinformatics lab. And uh. I was actually telling somebody the other day mm-hmm. when I started my PhD, the department that I am doing my post doctoral study in did not exist. Oh, wow. So that's yeah, as fast so the field was, is moving. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously there has been a glorious longstanding history of biomedical informatics and biome- uh, biomedical informatics training program at Stanford, but the department of uh, biomedical data science, which is the department I'm in now, it didn't exist, which is, which is sort of mind-blowing to think about to start your PhD and then to have things change so rapidly. Um, People were not doing all the deep learning that's happening now. Um, And so actually when I graduated, I did residency in dermatology. And as someone who tries to sort of keep up with what's going on with technology, whether that's genomics or devices, I was following very closely the rise of artificial intelligence and its use in medicine. Um, And so that was something that I became very interested in studying um, as I finished up residency and decided to continue training for the rest of forever in the pursuit (laughs) of becoming a physician scientist. For just a few more years, just a few more years. So there's two new papers out. One 
um, is, uh, is a paper that you've written a review article called How to Evaluate Deep Learning for Cancer Diagnostic Factors and Recommendations. And another paper that you all recently published um, entitled How Medical AI Devices Are Evaluated, Limitations and Recommendations from Analysis of FDA Approvals. I wonder, these are both really interesting, but I wonder which one you think we should start with. Um, should we start with the, um, the, medic, the, the FDA part or should we start with the, uh, the other article and come to that? You know, I think they're very complementary papers, right? As a, because the first one really, you know, the one about cancer diagnostics yeah. is talking about how we evaluate the literature. So things prior to approval, like when you're reading a paper and you see someone make a claim about what their AI can do, how do you decide whether or not that is something that is a value, mm-hmm. um, whether it actually does what it says it does? <clears throat> Or if you're someone who wants to get into this field and you're thinking about designing algorithms, how do you think about approaching the problem? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the second paper kind of goes into the more regulatory landscape. Um, so, I mean, we can start with whichever one you want to start with first. I do think one is like early stage type, you know, trying to evaluate things at earlier stages. And then the other one is like what happens down the pipeline when you actually go to FDA approval, clinical implementation, yes. um, and that sort of thing. Okay, let's start. Let's start with the that you you're, let's start with the development side. So I, I really okay. like this. Um, you know, you have this really nice figure in your paper, and here here's what you say in the figure. You say, you know, there are four questions you need to think about when you're applying um, artificial intelligence or machine learning to uh, clinical questions. One, what is the clinical task you want to uh, uh, solve or improve versus what is the machine learning task? Two, how robust is the underlying data and how do you train the machine learning model? Three, how was the model designed? And four, how was the model evaluated? I wonder if you might start with the first one. Um, what is the difference between a clinical task and a machine learning task? Yeah, so I'll use the example from uh, dermatology. I think you know there have been a lot of papers that have taken photos, um, <laughs> clinical photos, trained an algorithm on it, sometimes with some extra clinical data, uh, you know, attached to it, sometimes just the photo and no other information. Mm -hmm. And then they say, okay, the algorithm can predict, uh, you know, diagnoses as well as a dermatologist. Mm, Done, right? So that's the machine learning task. The machine learning task is it's taking these photos and it's learning to find differences between the photos and the training data to be able to classify what, you know, whether something is a benign nevus or a melanoma and so on. But that's not actually what the clinical task is in the dermatology workflow. Yes, with some telemedicine, sometimes we do get a single photo, um, but generally there may be a history, there's some background. And as I mentioned, some algorithms do are now trying to incorporate history. But in a dermatology clinical visit, you generally, you see the patient you have to first identify the lesion, right? It's not that it's given to you. Right. You have to first find it. Right. Um, and there is one algorithm that's trying to do that now, but but that's like step one. Usually, you know, touch is also involved, at least with the dermatological exam. You take a history, you sort of look at the patient and you make an assessment of whether or not you think that you need to biopsy or, or not biopsy. And, and truly, no, very few dermatologists, um, you know, except for when it's very obvious, can necessarily always say that something is a melanoma. The number needed to biopsy 
among dermatologists who are specially trained on average, it's something like 7.5 reported in one paper Hmm. in order to find a melanoma. Hmm. And so, you know, the clinical task for us is not always like, this is a melanoma. It's this is a suspicious lesion. It could actually fall into any category of malignancies. I'm going to biopsy it. That's my like, that's my sort of task. Yeah. So I guess I would say that's really well put because I guess I can see two ways in which uh, a a theoretical device may help you. One device would be, um, you know, a device that after the doctor looks over the patient, you step into a room and you stand there and it says, here are two spots you didn't even consider. And so if it can tell you, if if you can draw your attention to places you didn't even look at, that might be a task that it can help you with potentially theoretically. The next thing it could help you with is the doctor has pre-identified. These are three things I'm thinking about ought to biopsy or not. And maybe then you scan it with whatever this thing is, this wand you have. And then the wand will tell you, you know, it would, it would, it would augment your probability. And so in one world, there's a certain rate with which you would biopsy it. In the other world, it's slightly diminished, but hopefully that augmentation of probability is done in a good way so that you're more likely to find what you want to find and less likely to find what you don't want to find. And, and the patient's more likely to be better off as a result. Um, and so I guess the, what you're pointing out to is a very, very good point, which is that the person who doesn't know a lot about the clinical operation, they may be training it on photos, but that may, that may not be the tool you need in your clinical practice. Um, you need either one, tool, one type of tool or another type of tool, but it ain't that tool. Um, fair to say? I think that's a fair, I think that's a fair assessment. From a research standpoint, I think, you know, when this was first done, it was a fascinating way to show that how the technology could be used to pick up features to help discriminate between things. Um, But exactly as you said, it may, I I think this idea of decision support is a really important one. And maybe those papers do kind of lay the groundwork for what decision support could look like or showing that it is a possibility Mm -hmm. because of the way that the algorithms are able to sort of pick up on the differences. It's just sort of like, how do we take the next step? So we've shown from a research side that these are the things that we can do, but how can we think about designing the tool in such a way that it could be used, you know, in clinic, it can work in different lighting conditions. It can work, you know, at different clinical sites, which might have different populations because many of the like studies have been done on basically lighter skin tones and don't really include darker skin tones as mm. Dr. Ade Adamson has talked about in yeah. one of his JAMA Derm perspectives. So I, I do think that like there's still a lot of work to do, but I, I like exactly how you're thinking about it is um, you have to think about like how it can help. And, and that's what one example is like in gastroenterology, um, they've basically tried to use tools to help, help uh, gastroenterologists detect polyps that they might not notice. Mm -hmm. But of course, then you get into a situation of how do you make sure your tool doesn't just lead to over biopsy and not, you know, and whether it actually improves the clinical outcome you care about. And that's another part of thinking of the clinical task. What is your clinical task? It's not just to biopsy as many skin lesions as possible or to not biopsy as many skin lesions possible. It's not to biopsy as many polyps or not. It's to, it's to walk that fine line of fighting over biopsying, yes, but also biopsying enough like early cancers that would have actually progressed and caused issues yes. um, earlier so that you actually improve clinical outcomes. And yes. that's a very hard question to measure, as you know, yes. which is why people like to use proxies because, you know, that that requires long term 
you know, studying to be able to actually say, Hey, like we've decreased mortality or, you know, the number of metastatic cases. Yes. Yeah. So I agree. I agree hundred percent. Like, I think that the goal is that the patient who sees the old fashioned dermatologist or whatever gets the old fashioned way of, of looking at their lesions. And the patient goes to the new dermatologist gets the new fangled way with whatever tools, wands you want to wave on them. Um, that as a result, the person who goes to the second dermatologist, maybe 15 years later, they're less likely to get like a big wide excision for some melanoma that got a little bit too much deforming the, the, you know, they're less likely to have a metastatic disease. They're less like, you know, they're more likely to live longer. I even think those are, you know, you don't even have to show them me they live longer, live better. Just show me that, you know, they're less likely to get some sort of uh, bigger, bigger intervention. And that way I'll take that, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, you avoid, you, you do that and you show that they have less biopsies. Yes, fewer biopsies along time. the road, right? Right, yes, yes. along the way in order <laughs> to prevent that, which is huge because, you know, it's easy for us to do these procedures, but it, it has an emotional impact on the patient. They yes. do have to go through a procedure. They have to wait to get their results. And if you can put the, them through that fewer times, I think even that, even if you don't change the rate of like, let's say the rate stays the same yes. in terms of catching malignancies. If you can actually just reduce the number of biopsies, even that for me is a big clinical win mm -hmm. um, in terms of like patient care. And then the other thing I'd say about skin tone, I have a little, I have a little anecdote. I have many times in my life had dripping wet hands and walked up to one of those automatic paper towel dispensers. I swear to God, it wasn't giving me what I wanted. And then somebody with very light skin tone goes up to it and voof, the paper towels just keep coming out. And I swear <laughs> to God, I don't know how that damn thing works, but I'm suspicious. I'm deeply suspicious of this paper towel machine. Uh, but you know, there's some things in life that I wait for someone else to study. I don't have the time or bandwidth. That's a hypothesis. Well, it you know, actually that, you know, I've heard this before. You have, and I, I, have paper towel machine. <laughs> I, I have yeah. heard this before. Okay. Um, I think this kind of goes back to who's in the room when technology is being designed and tested. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important basically that if you, if you don't have diverse teams building the tools and, you know, diverse people testing the tools, then you get situations like that. And it, you can, you can imagine that this, can bleed into medicine in many ways. It's like I've mentioned the issue in dermatology, which now more and more people are, are aware of, but yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. As uh, yes, I, uh, as, 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 as before I, I let myself get too angry, I think about that Dyson Airblade, and then I know that, uh, that they don't know what they're doing. Cause that's a piece <laughs> of shit. That's a fucking Dyson Airblade. Okay. Um, so you make a great point in your article about the robustness of the data. Um, I wonder if you might talk about that for a second before we shift to the FDA stuff. Um, you know, wh why is it important that, uh, or I guess, you know, what is the type of caliber of data that we're working with a lot of times? And, you know, what, what do you mean when you think about robust data? Yeah. So I think of robust data as data that a data set that is large, it comes from multiple sites, mm -hmm. or at least there's like an external test set, mm -hmm. because the thing that I like to say about these deep learning algorithms, and I was just a resident, so I'm not saying this in any, like, I'm saying it almost in a self-deprecating way. Like these algorithms in some ways behave like, you know, good test-taking resonance yeah. where you're like trying to pick up the clues that will yeah. give you the answer without it actually meaning necessarily that you've actually learned the concept. So for example, if I'm a resident and I'm in a Kodachrome session where they're showing me photos and I have to like rattle off a differential and I see a photo of a lesion that's been circled. Yes. I know that that attending biopsy that lesion, meaning uh, that 
that I am putting malignancy at the top of my differential, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. As a resident and algorithms work, you know, we tell them we need you to discriminate between benign and malignant. And it's not necessarily going to learn features inherent to it. It may, it may, it it does. That's the hope. The hope is that it does. But if all your malignant lesions are circled, and all your non-malignant ones are not circled, it's going to pick up on that. Yes. If all your malignant lesions are taken with this high quality like camera and all your like, yes. you know, benign lesions are with some like, you yes. know, old iPhone that yes. is really blurry or whatever, it's going to pick up on that. that. Yes. It's going to it's going to pick up anywhere it can find signal. And that's why yes. I say it's like the good test taking resident yes. where it just basically tries to pick up on the context clues because it in its mind, its goal is not, I must learn what a melanoma looks like. Its goal is I have these images that are labeled as melanoma. I have these lesions that are labeled as benign nevi, and I must find anything that will help me classify those two, two. right? Or even if the two things came from two different sites. So that's kind of what I'm talking about. Um, The robustness of the data is just making sure that there aren't other things that it's picking up on. Um, and then, of course, with these algorithms, there's always a concern about overtraining and overfitting, which is something we can talk about a little bit more because we looked at that in the FDA paper. Yes, okay. Um, but then also like the quality of the data. So a lot of dermatology, and I, and I keep going back to derm because that's my specialty, sure. so sorry. But a lot of the um, images that are used have been you know, pulled from the hospital or public atlases. And there may not be a biopsy proven diagnosis. Mm. People are getting better at using biopsy proven diagnosis. But you have to remember that, that, you know, as I mentioned, the number needed to biopsy for a melanoma is like, say, 7.5, right? And so if you're only using consensus to label your images, which means that the image is labeled by like three dermatologists saying, yeah, we all think this is a melanoma or we all Mm. think this is a basal cell. Um, that may not actually be accurate. And so you've actually trained an algorithm that knows how to have consensus with the dermatologists that we're labeling Mm -hmm. and not necessarily be able to distinguish what's the ground truth because you didn't really have the gold standard ground truth available, particularly with like cutaneous malignancies. Because I will tell you in practice and everyone's but sometimes you think it's a basal cell and right. it's actually an amelanotic melanoma. Interesting. Um, you know, exactly. Or sometimes you may think it's a nothing and it actually turns out to be a skin cancer. I'm sure every dermatologist has a story of some banal looking lesion that they biopsied and they were sort of shocked when it came back as something else. Interesting. No, this is uh, terrific. I think those are those are some great highlights of the sort of the classic problems in this space. Uh, and yeah, I, I concede that if they have not actually biopsy proven what they're looking at, that's not a good data set to train your algorithm on. Right. So what happened when you looked at, uh, so I, I think then the next paper complements it so nicely because, you know, here you're talking about upstream, what you can do better. Um, but one of the challenges in this space is uh, the FDA is permissive, very permissive. And that leads to your second paper, how medical AI devices are evaluated, limitations and recommendations from, from analysis of FDA approvals. I wonder if you might walk through, what are some of the key highlights here? Um, I was shocked when I looked, I mean, you know, I, I deal with cancer drugs, so I know about uh, low standards of evidence, but I didn't know how low the bar got. Uh, it was quite low. Um, so yeah, I wonder what your thoughts are about this. 
I was surprised. I think um, so. The senior author James Zhu, uh, who is a you know expert in artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. I think we were all surprised. He was surprised too. Um, this paper was led actually by identical twins. Oh, brilliant! Really? Uh, yeah, brilliant identical twins, uh, Kevin Wu and er- uh, Eric Wu. I am wow. so thankful for the Slack Zoom era because I don't have to confuse them when I'm sending <laughs> they're labeled on Slack. Exactly. Uh-huh. They're, they're labeled on Zoom. You can you can uh-huh. Slack message. Them. Yeah. So they're um they're awesome. Um and also uh David Oyang, who's a cardiologist, was also on this paper. So we all kind of worked together. Um, and it was all done in the Zoom era of COVID. So we were, you know, working on it virtually. Mm-hmm. But the idea here is we just, you know, we we found that there was 130 approved medical AI devices. Mm-hmm. And unsurprisingly, 75% of these approvals have come in the last two years. Mm, um, wow. And then the FDA has these risk categories Uh for these devices, high risk is something that obviously, like if it screws up, yes, it can cause sure. death or very bad bodily harm. Yeah. So um, 126 out of the 100, th- so it was 130 devices. By the way, I have to put in none in dermatology yet. Nice so interesting. Um, 126 out of 130 only reported retrospective studies. And of course, we are working with the publicly available data, like these yes. FDA summaries. And so anything I quote, there may actually be more information that the FDA has that we don't have access to. But I, one thing I would say is for the sake of transparency, we hope that you know these device manufacturers should be required to put more, like have a standard of what they right. report right. so that physicians like you and me can actually look at the report and say like what 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 did they do right. to like get their approval right, right? um and so there's 130 as i mentioned 126 out of 130 retrospective none of the 54 devices that uh david and i as physicians kind of classified as high risk because we kind of looked at what they did right. um had a prospective trial Jeez. um 93 out of 130 did not publicly report the number of evaluation sites um, that they use. So the FDA may have that information, but right. but we do not. Um, 71 had sample sizes reported yes. uh, with a with a uh, with a you know an average of like 300 yes. for the sample but that, size but that means that as you put it half of them didn't even report their sample size that's crazy right. it's crazy to, to us to the public the I fda know, yeah yeah, the, yeah, the yeah yeah so i will but say still, like, that's crazy FDA, i mean we should, we should want to know that exactly exactly that's what surprised me and then out of the 71 that had that information yes. only 17 reported publicly their demographic subgroup uh-huh. performances. So when we're talking about bias, yes. like, yes. Like so it's like, Im- machine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know what it's I'm going to, I'm going to think of you every time. I, I know, I, I know what is, I know it. I know what it's up to. I know a fucking paper towel machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> go on, go on. Sorry. I didn't mean no, to. No, no, no. I'm laughing because there's like, it's just, it is, it's true. It's like, yeah, I think it's it like, what, I have no idea if it's possible that 
these algorithms could have biases. And some of it is so under the radar and quiet. So like, I would suggest, um, so Dr. Ziad Obermeyer uh-huh. had this yes. paper in science, yes. um, looking at these decision support tools uh-huh. that try to help decide which patients might need extra resources. Yes. yes. And basically found yes. that this it tool, was yes, it was, yeah. So it was biased. You've I don't know if you've talked about this. No, I haven't. I haven't even, I I mean, I, yeah, I I need to read that, give that paper a good read and maybe, and maybe talk about it or something. Yeah. Found it interesting. Yeah. Yeah, It's a great paper because basically it was not the thing with bias is it's like, nobody goes in saying, I'm going to bake the bias into the algorithm. Right. We have a society that has huge inequalities already. So even if you like baseline train things to, you know, at how society is, you're, you're going to get in trouble. But in that paper, um, in that paper, they found basically that, uh, a white patient that was recommended for, for services and a black patient that was recommended for, for services, the black patients were significantly sicker. And the reason is because they used healthcare dollars as a proxy. And as we know, due to issues with access to care, and things of like of that nature, there are inequalities on how healthcare dollars get spent. And so that bias got baked into this algorithm. It's just so, another, I mean, it's just another way, like, uh, like you're circling this, the circling the lesion bias, um, right. it's, it's, it's an artifact in the data set that the algorithm will quickly see delineates things, but it may be, it may thwart your actual goal. I mean, I think they're right. Which your that. whole goal is to provide better patient care and make right. sure sick patients are able to get the support services they need. So when I see something like 17 out of 71 only ha- you know looked at a demographic yeah. sub analysis, I get so worried about it's a bit low. Yeah, like what if there are biases, demographic biases and and we we wouldn't, you know, we we wouldn't actually be, know that without that without that analysis, without that monitoring. Yes. Um so I, I do think that I feel like there's a long way that we need to go in terms of like transparency and yes. improving the bar. And there, the thing is, is that there are people thinking about this. You know, there's been the uh, consort AI. There are guidelines about what, you know, what clinical trials reporting should be done with AI devices. People are thinking about this. Um, and then, of course, there are discussions around how do we do algorithmic stewardship um, at a healthcare systems level, which Atul Butte, who's at your institution of UCSF, previously at Stanford, actually he was on my thesis. Uh, oh, was he? So, yeah, um, he, you know, he was the senior author on this paper, which I thought was quite excellent talking about you know, even if you have FDA approval, like mm. health systems need to sit down and have this sort of like, stewardship committee composed of diverse stakeholders, including, you know, clinicians, data scientists, ethicists, maybe even, you know, having patients there that can actually like think about what these algorithms do and how they should be monitored because um, they, they can be also sensitive to distribution shifts in the data. So like, for example, imagine, as is not something that's real, but like, Imagine that you had an algorithm, a decision support algorithm that looked at chest x-rays and gave you a probability of like pneumonia, pneumothorax, whatever have you, okay? 
And then all of a sudden COVID hit. Exactly. Interesting. Yes. Right. That COVID hits, but it's before we fully realize that COVID is here. Right. So data distribution shifts can happen without you realizing that it's happening. Yes. Yes. And And so what happens, you know, what happens when something, a new disease or something happens is like, what happens to the behavior of that algorithm? Because it has never seen COVID lung disease before. Um, It's not trained on that. And it may not also be trained to say, Hey, this is, you know, something I've never seen. That's something, that's something people are working on, like allowing algorithms to be able to say, Hey, like a human, Hey, I've actually never seen this before. Interesting. Um, No, I mean, you make a good point, which is, um, the conditions under which the algorithm was developed have to be consistent for the algorithm to continue to work the same. Um, but if there is something new, new carcinogen, new virus, new X, um, it could have a different pattern and, and maybe even mal, mal, uh, not do a good job. At least a person, as you note, would be able to throw up their hands and say something is odd. And in fact, it's funny. I mean, I think many people in COVID, I've, I've heard anecdotally, of course, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but there is some data. One data I think, of course, was... Um, the, the classic uh, a, uh, HIV and PCP pneumonia. It only took six cases, I think, in this city, San Francisco, many years ago to lead to that 1981 uh, MMWR report that identified HIV, you know, well, long before we knew it was HIV, but identified right. something new is going on. And I think I heard anecdotally from people that they saw some pneumonias uh, in February, March, uh, back when they were told not to test, don't test that, you know, that looked, that, that made them disconcerted about SARS-CoV-2. Um, so I think you make a great point. Um, that it is a moving, a moving space. But here's my question to you. Um, you know, I was read. So there's, I mean, I think there's two ways for the FDA to handle it. Uh, okay, um, um, maybe more. But the way that, I mean, I, I'll just say my bias. The way I would want it, and the way I think, okay, the way I would want to do it is like I think there's a role for these new technologies. I don't know what that role is, but in my mind, the role is if you make people better off. So, for instance, if you have a new algorithm for PE you know, do a randomized control trial and show me at one year out, there's less dead people in what in the group that had your algorithm than the other group. And I don't want to look at an endpoint like the number of subsegmental PEs you find or the number of filling defects and blah, 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 blah. I want to look at the clinical endpoint because I want to know your algorithms empowering us to have, you know, better, better outcomes. And I want to see it by race. And I want to see that it works equally well in different races and ethnicities, and you know, all those sorts of demographic factors that one would be concerned about. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I think there's a group of people that say, uh, uh, just let it go, let it loose on the market. You know, anyone can develop, you know, um, there's no randomized control trial that says you should listen to plenary session. Plenary session isn't regulated by the FDA. And similarly, some of these things, they're just things you use for fun to help you out. You know, you feel like you want to use it, you use it. You don't want to use it, you don't use it. So I think that's the complete sort of libertarian side of the spectrum. Um, in the middle, I think, and actually kind of where we are, I think is the worst of both worlds because the companies I've heard through lobbying that they don't want the FDA not to regulate these products. They want the regulation because they can charge whatever they want once they get that stamp of approval. They get the stamp, it's a sales tactic. However, they don't want the regulation to be onerous. They don't want to be able to have to report their sample sizes and pesky things like that. And so they're in the sweet spot of profits. And I'd rather take it all the way to the extreme of make sure things are clinically sound. The other extreme would be, I think, have at it. Just like podcasts, I guess, are, you know, a deregulated medical technology. Of course, I'm not claiming that anyone is healthier of listening to this podcast. We're just trying to entertain you, I suppose. But I mean, but to some degree, I mean, maybe we are trying to educate about sort of broader thinking on, on medicine. So anyway, but anyway, we're in the deregulation side. My question to you is, where do you fall on this spectrum? Um, and, uh, and, and, and how do you think about it? 
Yeah. So I, I first want to say, I'm not like one of those naysayers. I am actually deeply interested in and invested in this working in a fair way, Mm -hmm. um, which is why I think if you love something, you have to be sort of critical to make sure that it's done right. Otherwise people will come and ask you to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you, if you, if you really mess it up, no one will let you actually do the interesting, cool, positive things that, that can come as a result of it. So I sort of, again, sit in the middle. I, I do have to say like already artificial intelligence for better or worse is a very large part of our lives, right? Netflix, Twitter, Facebook. And it's really interesting because even in that realm, you think, well, let's just let it loose. There are no consequences. It's not like we're talking about medical, medical, you know, issues. Yeah. But it turns out as we are now learning, actually there are severe ethical consequences of it where we basically have these algorithms that are, are trying to get you to come back and look at your Twitter feed over and over and over again. Right. And so they're feeding you what you want to see that will make you come back. And if that is medical misinformation for you, that means you'll get fed more and more medical misinformation. If I just say one thing on this, you know, you know, me, I'm one of the weird, I'm one of the most unusual people in the world in that one thing gets me really bad, which is people saying progression free survival is clinically meaningful in and of itself. Okay. I'm like the only person on earth who gets upset about this. Okay. I, mean, I don't know. There's like five of us. Okay. There's not many. Twitter somehow sniffed that out. And I swear to God, for a while, it was showing me every time somebody said PFS was clinically meaningful, it'd find that tweet on the internet and it'd show it to me. And I'd be like, no, damn it. That's not right. And, you know, and I was like, but it's, that's the game, right? It's addicting me. And so right. now I've disabled it deeply, but go on. Yes, you go know, on. The reason it's doing that is probably because every time you saw that, you were probably commenting. Yes, I was. Exactly. jumping in and commenting. Yeah. And so- the algorithm figured out the way to get you to tweet more is to show you that and to make you upset yeah. and angry because it figured it out and it, it showed it to you. So yeah. we'll, we'll leave that there. Yes, leave that. Then there. there's, of course, things yeah. like self-driving cars. And of course, there's like whole teams thinking about the ethics of self-driving cars. Right. Yes. And then we think about med. I think that medicine is not the same as what Netflix movie you watch next. Yes. Now, I, I think that, you know, the stakes are high. Yes. We already have issues with disparities. I don't want to see them get worse. I want to see them get better. Mm-hmm. And I do think we can use technology to make things better, but we have to do it right. And we mm-hmm. have to be very cognizant yeah. of that. And I do think we need regulation because again, like what if something is designed for decision support? And I'm not saying this, but but it performs so well that people start to use it as like primary decision making instead of just support. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but that's just like something, you know, something to think about. Um, I think I think, again, like you have to just you you just have to make sure that what you're using is actually improving patient care, as you yes. said, like it's not leading. I mean. You could imagine an algorithm that seems to work really well, but then it just turns out you're biopsying a bunch of, you know, lesions that would have never, ever progressed to full-blown cancer. So I think that's why it's really important to have the trials, as you said, with the clinically meaningful endpoints, which kind of goes back to what I said. What is the clinical task? 
What is it that we actually care about in terms of outcomes rather than just like what's shiny and cool? Right. Right. And so that's what I think about. If it can make us better, then I think we should use it. And of course, it needs to make us better in a fair way. That's that's just kind of my opinion on on the matter. That's well said. No, and so I, I see you are definitely in that in that one, in the first direction I outlined, which is that we need better better evidence for these products. And and I think you make a compelling case that when you go in the other direction, uh, you can unleash the monster. And I guess I I'm not on Facebook, but uh, <laughs> when I, anytime I hear about it, I just hear it's a sea of garbage. Um, and uh, I am on Twitter, and I know that's a sea of garbage. Um, but you know, I've done a lot to actually just a side note to combat these things. So what do I do? One. Um, uh, I've created my own internal rules and I'm not, I'm not perfect and I'm working on it, but here are my rules. One, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm never going to reply to anyone ever again. Uh, okay. So, you know what, like it baits you to reply. So I don't want to reply. I want to see what I see, think about it and then put it in my own terms when I'm ready to put it, you know, when I'm ready to come say something, I'll say it on my own terms. I don't need to reply. Replying also good. Nobody can ever read a reply as like a, it's always, it gets to animosity so quick. I mean, I don't know what's going on with people. They're, people are not in a good place. They're not ready to be replied to. I don't think they're ready to be replied to either. Okay, then the other thing I do is I like, um, I disable all notifications. In fact, I don't even see the notifications. I set the settings so that if I don't follow that person, they don't even show me the notification. That's good because then I can, I, it, you know, it, it feels more like uh, like when you used to write a book, you don't know what the, you don't want to, I mean, you don't want uh, to know what every reader is thinking every second of the reading. Uh, that's not, I, you know, I, it'll, I think it chains me to their emotions and their thoughts and I don't want to be chained. I want to be free to think what I think. Um, and then the other thing is then I just stopped looking at it like a lot, uh, like the, the decline in usage was precipitous. And that has, uh, that's also really good. And I guess what I, I, and I do think about quitting it entirely, but the only thing I struggle with is for all the things that are bad about it, which are innumerable, uh, the good part is that every once in a while, if you have a message um, and you want to get it out there, it is a good way to get it out there. I mean, you know, somebody's written, you know, a lot of academic papers before Twitter, um, maybe at least 50, 60 papers pre-Twitter, I can tell you that they ain't nobody who ever read those, I mean, nobody read those papers, you know, very right. little readership. And Twitter at least gets people to read what you're writing, which I think is one of the goals of writing is that somebody reads it, uh, I hope. Um, I'll give you the last word on this. I guess the other thing, maybe if you want to comment on is, I don't know, um, I guess the last word, I know our time is almost up. Um, how, how does one get funding to do what you want to do? I mean, like, who are the funders? Who are the people who are saying, this is an important thing. We need it. I mean, obviously, you know, I see the wisdom, how important it is. It's only going to get more important in the years to come. You talked about how when you started your PhD, this department didn't even exist. Now you're, you know, you're in it. Um, so it's changing very rapidly. So who are the funders? Where do you go to? Um, how do you think about the sort of the next few years of your career? Where are you going to go from here? Yeah. So as I uh, mentioned earlier, like I am actively on the, on the job market. I'm going to make that tiny plug since so I, if anyone I, is interested. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a lot of opportunities, you know, that more, you know, it can be within, within the NIH by specialty, mm-hmm. for example, if they're interested, but also there are more informatics minded institutes. There's a lot of also like foundation funding available. I think increasingly so as people realize that this yeah. is an issue there is a lot of funding that comes from industry, a lot. And Mm. there are of course questions about what that means in terms of conflicts of interest, which I know is an uh, interest topic. 
um, a topic of interest for you. Yes. Um, but a lot of it is, a lot of the research is funded by industry. A lot of the research is done by industry. Yes. And there is this whole question that we're grappling with, um, with ethical AI. And you only have to go read about what's kind of happened, transpired at Google and how, how the ethical AI world was rocked by that because, and, and it's not, I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on just Google. I think it's sure. every single company, Google, Facebook, what have you, and nobody's perfect, but it's just like when your rev and it, it, when your revenue is predicated on getting users to use your stuff or getting your tools out there, um, it might become problematic if you know there's a group within your your company that's pushed you know trying to put the brakes on stuff because they're concerned about um, concerned about unfairness or bias. Um, and I'm I'm not saying that these companies don't care about these things because it's kind of within their like perception to at least have the appearance of caring, but. But I think this is where academics really comes in, like having some academic independence where we yes. can, and this is the case, not just in technology, but across, right? Yes. We need pharmaceutical companies to help develop drugs because drugs are not being developed inside of the acad, you know, right. inside of the academy. But we need independent academics to push back yeah. when things are drugs are being developed that don't necessarily, as you like to say, only increase progression-free survival and not <laughs> overall mortality, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like that's what we need. And I think that's where I see the synergy. I mean, I, I myself, I will say like work with technology companies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have a project that I'm working on with IBM and I love that team. Uh, it's not on something that's medic. It's not something that's going to like end up being FDA approved. It's not like a medical device type thing, but, mm -hmm. but I think that there is going to, in the future, there's going to have to be continued synergy between academics and um, these technology companies in terms of developing these tools. But I also think that it's very important for us in academia to like push back when we see problems and to be kind of try to serve as an independent voice in that regard. It's complicated, as you know, right? Yeah, I think that's well put. Roxana Danishu, thank you so much for doing this. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it was great chatting. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.